there he is. Look at that. Shit, you look tired. What's wrong? Tired? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Good morning. Thank you too, Paul. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And um, like I said to you, we tend to uh, to go off topic because we, we like the sort of open, friendly, fireside chat approach. So wherever the discussion takes us is where we'll go. But we've got the the sort of guideline questions that we put in place in case we should happen to accidentally run out of things to talk about, which never <laughs> happens, to be honest with you. By the way, I did start recording right from the start. Anything that we've recorded is free for us to use because we do little funny snips at the beginning before it <laughs> starts. So anything you've said will and can be held against it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, noted. <laughs> Villa, are you ready to go? Yep, good to go. Yes. Uh, Adam, you ready to go? Rock and roll. Fantastic. Let's kick off this episode then. Welcome to Fintech Daydreaming. The podcast that dives into the world of banking technologies and the ever-changing landscape of fintech companies. We bring you real-life examples from global and local thought leaders, as well as experts working within the financial industry, and seek out the best stories from the front lines of financial services innovation, where dreams of industry pioneers meet reality. Hosted by Paul Krogdahl and Ville Sontu, this is Fintech Daydreaming. Hello, guys, and welcome back to another fantastic and interesting, we hope, season of fintech daydreaming it is episode one of season seven i cannot believe that we have already reached season seven something that started off of villa and i as just a small little idea a project a hobby a something we just threw around one evening of hey why don't we start doing a podcast and look where we are now we've got uh close to two thousand followers on linkedin we're on YouTube. We are on most of the podcasting channels. We are starting to get, I won't say starting, we have for almost from the start had fantastic guests with us and today is no difference. It is the start of 2023 and uh, we are looking forward to covering some of the interesting things that are looking to be on the the wall for this year, ESG, continuation of embedded finance, the continued disruption of payments. I mean, even blockchain is starting to take some interesting returns into the discussion. So let's see where we're going to go in all of this. But we're kicking off today with ESG. But before I go anywhere, as always, I am Paul Crogdale. That will never change. I will always be Paul Crogdale unless something strange happens along the way. But for the time being, I'm still Paul Crogdale. And I've got with me my one and only fantastically true partner in fintech and fintech daydreaming villa how are you i'm doing good despite you telling me as soon as you saw me on camera you told me that i oh you look really tired which i guess <laughs> it's, a, it's a euphemism for saying that you look like crap but uh, anyway uh i'll take it but those uh, are your words not mine yeah <laughs> So I'll take it. Uh, I'll just blame, blame the fluorescent light, lighting here in the meeting room where I'm uh, where I'm in right now, uh, because of course I'm traveling again. So not in my home studio at the moment. But again, uh, starting season seven, looking really good. Uh, I would just like to add to the list that you mentioned on the topics of uh, 2023 and again our uh, season seven. Uh, 
it will be the year of artificial intelligence. I think the uh, the emergence of uh, generative AI applications like uh, ChatGPT uh, towards the end of last year show, show really showed us the way uh, this this technology can actually change a lot of things in the world. Uh, remains to be seen how will this will impact the financial services space, of course. But I think uh, we're going to be having a lot of those conversations, and I'm looking forward to bringing on some uh, some guests to talk about that as well. But uh, today it's going to be something else. So why don't you bring our guest into the conversation? Absolutely. And I'd, I'd be delighted to. We are joined today by Adam Thompson, who is, I would say, one of my most favorite go-to people when it comes to, to ESG. And before we even get into the whole depth of ESG and what ESG is, what it means, what it means to, to the industry and to us as individuals, maybe, Adam, a quick introduction of who you are, how you got here, and uh, what's your superpower? <laughs> sure. And firstly, and foremost, thank you both for having me on today's podcast. So I'm Adam Thompson. I'm a EU Climate Pact Ambassador, and I'm also a Global Sustainable Finance and ESG Offering Leader in the informatics space. I've been uh, working in ESG for the last uh, half a decade, and in the industry, in banking and financial markets specifically for the last 15 I would say I've gone through the whole life cycle from researcher to developer to your system admin, your business analyst, all the way through now to hopefully providing um, provoking thought leadership. I suppose my my superpower, as ironic as this sounds, is actually common sense. Because when we actually start talking about ESG and all the technology enablement and all the data creation, all the good stuff that you can get and in terms of line of sight, there's actually quite a lot of it where you need to keep your feet back down to earth and actually just really look, you know, from the wood between the trees. And uh, we'll, we'll talk a lot about trees today, no doubt. But I think um, that is actually common sense is not so common. So I fall into quite a rare category in, in that regard. Um, but uh, that said, I love applying this to financial markets. And more importantly, I love that we can actually make an impact. And that's hopefully what we're going to talk about today, a little bit more from the ESG lens. I, I think that's fantastic. One of the interesting things here is, ESG has become a hot topic buzzword, really, to a lot of people only sort of recently as last year. And here you're saying that you've been involved in this space for quite some time. Maybe we should start with what is ESG? What does it stand for? Why is it important? Why is it so important now? And, and why do the banks and us as individuals have to care? Yeah, exactly. And actually, I'm getting goosebumps because I'm going to tell the, the story as to what was my sort of aha moment as to why I wanted to get into ESG. Hmm. So I was, uh, I worked pretty much around the globe, 40 plus different countries. I'm a bit of a nomad. I live in the Bavarian forest by choice. Um, but I was actually working in a particular central bank uh, in the European area. And it was like all, all of us who will be listening in, none of us work nine to five, but uh, every evening I kept coming out of this bank out of their, their facilities. And uh, in the evenings, the fire exits were actually with homeless people in the fire exits. Now, if you can imagine that in terms of monetary policy and what's actually the reality of social, for me, it was just a, a no-brainer to say, look, there's something fundamentally wrong here. We have to change what is happening. The other sort of semi-aha moment, which sort of gave me a, a bit of a, a, a kick up the posterior to really, you know, move thoughts into actual actions. Um, where I live is a place called Passau, which is bordering between uh, Austria and Germany. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's pretty much the gateway for during the recent uh, influx of um, uh, human migration. So when we've had recent uh, geopolitical tensions and as a result coming in, 
it was very interesting for me also to see just the uh, the local reaction in this regards, but also the support that was in place to make actually uh, solutions, but not just in the front line, but also more to the people that are being impacted directly. And so for me, it was a bit of a question to say, well, how am I going to get involved or how can I get started? And then the other thing which really resonates with me personally is the concept of greenwashing. Because you hear a lot about ESG, you hear the acronyms obviously about E being environmental, S being social, G being governance or economics. But in this regards, it's more about what's actually the single source of truth and how do you actually provide that line of sight so you know what you're doing is beneficial at the end of the day. And it's not just something that's for marketing or communication purposes, but actually has a material impact. And I think that's, uh, I'm already getting on my soapbox, I know, but that for me is the the basics of humanity. And you'll hear this other um uh, expression quadruple bottom line and I think this is really true when we talk about people planet prosperity and purpose or if you like the UN sustainability development goals the 17 of them they resonate so powerfully because if you actually take a step back from again from technology but just what's happening to us right now on this planet 140 million people can be displaced by 2030 because the planet's warming up you know, I mean, that's just wrong. Fundamentally, <laughs> And then you look at it also in terms of some of the so-called uh, projects that are meant to be providing positive impacts. And you realize that it's not taking into consideration about native species that we're looking at nature or flora and fauna and all the rest. And you might be thinking, hey, a minute, this is a banking podcast. Yes, because actually when you look at those ecosystem services, not just economically, but also technology wise and what it gives you for value, that is not just a differentiator, that's moving everybody into a positive future. So positive nature capital flows, it's not just a buzzword or like a, a trend, it's a must, it's the next commodities. Those commodities is what we should be investing in and focusing on right now. And yes, there's lots of great stuff that is going on. I'm not going to discard that. You should never, you know, throw the baby out of the bathwater. But that said, there's definitely a need to step back and reflect and look at what is the other wealth of technology and data that's out there, which you can be leveraged. And actually, you can contribute towards yourself. Uh, and maybe I'll pause there to get the next question in. But we have a couple of cracking examples, which are going to be announced in the next uh, four to six weeks as well, specifically mm. around future. Look, a fantastic amount of passion there, right? It's always fantastic to have guests that come on here that live for and have a passion for, for what it is they're talking about. And I have a feeling this is going to be a podcast we would want to go on for three hours rather than just the normal 45 minutes. But it's actually interesting, everything that you've laid out there, because to very many people, and I've got to admit for me very early on as well, when we're talking about ESG, the only thing I was thinking about was the environmental part. Right. Mm -hmm. To me, it was just about, yeah, it's, it's the, the, the greenness and the forests and the trees and, and, and everything else. But as you sort of described it there, it is actually an awful lot more and a much wider context to ESG and, and what we should be thinking about. And I, I hear a lot of those undertones there that, that we've talked about quite a lot in, in banking for quite so many years, you know, the unbanked, the underbanked, the social impact, et cetera, et cetera. And, they're all filling in there. So it makes an awful lot of sense to me. But I'm then wondering in that, you know, when we look at this from the, the role of the financial institutions in promoting ESG goals and delivering against them, how, how can the fintechs and the banks leverage their unique strengths to, to drive a positive change in this area at all? Yeah, I think, um, let me start on the macro level to answer that. So I, I think first and foremost, looking at the distribution of the 8 billion plus people that we have on the planet, but also the capital and where that is right now. 
you have to, yes, it's climate first, but it's not climate only. And the EA, the S and the G, they're all intrinsically linked. So it's all well and good to look at pathways to net zero, carbon neutrality or negative carbon pathways, et cetera. But you also have to realize that um, when you're providing your data as E as environmental, climate is just a subset. You also got your biodiversity. You also got your water effluency, circularity, waste, et cetera. And the other thing that we have a bit of a challenge right now, yes, there are data curation challenges, but I wouldn't say that's the blocker. I think that's, to be honest, people not trying hard enough because the solution's already out there. It's more about that engagement model and change management to look at if I'm missing certain data in certain sectors, how can I leverage AI, geospatial or other techniques to be able to, if you like, fill out that picture? But on the other side, it's also about how do you then bring it back from, yes, the investment lens, also partly the regulatory lens, but the communication, that's the challenge. So as you say, E being environmental, if there was a research done by University of Zurich uh, around Eastern time uh, last year, where they looked at ESG risk rating providers and all the top logos. So if anyone's listening, I'm not going to create any liability here. But on the same notion, if you take the uh, the paper and it was written by, um, it was called the Divergent of ESG Ratings, taking the, the top five, it ranges from having and using SASB, so Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, as the, um, the framework to do the comparison. It ranges from the lowest being 38 indicators to 282. But even the, the best in class at 282 aren't taking into consideration all the environmental aspects. And I think if you're as a bank or a fintech, it's almost looking at, well, look, climate first, but now if I move into nature and I look at biodiversity and I need to, let's take one of the new regulations, Task Force for Nature Financial Disclosure, and I won't go complete acronym suit today just to caveat before I get going, but the first step of the methodology, which is formerly known as LEAP, is locate. So you need to have your geospatial data for your operations, also where you're actually based, so your language allows you, but also your value streams as to where you're performing. And that traceability is a new data stream for most banks today. They, they simply haven't had to curate it in the past, so there was no need. But actually, if you start looking at that and applying that to the broader ESG elements, take social, for example, communities where they have their their um, the business, um, maybe they're creating widgets and they're having certain um, emissions going into the atmosphere. What's the impact of the local community? Is that data stream that you now need, not just for decarbonization, but also employee health and safety, looking at, she, looking at the ecosystem values for how do you do restoration activities? And those restoration activities, by the way, nature, I keep harping about this, nature is implicit, but it's like 44%, I'm, I'm going to quote the uh, uh, the team now, it's like um, $44 trillion of economic value is through nature. So it's not like this is a buzzword and I'm a tree hugger. Yes, I do love trees. And I, that's different science with Japan. We'll come on to another podcast a different day. But the point here, it has monetary value as well as the benefit to the broader society. And uh, I suppose more importantly, putting the value where it's needed. So... I'll give one last one on our pause. I'm going to give a shout out to um, our friends at uh, Rebalance Earth, where I'm, I'm going to ask you, pal, how, how much do you think a dead elephant is worth today? You know, for the ivory, just on the on the on the black market, what would you think? Oh gosh, no idea. Um, no idea. Just just for the ivory, let's let's say let's say uh, as as that's an industry that means nothing to me. Fifteen thousand. <laughs> 15,000. I've got no ivory, never bought any, never thought about buying it. And I don't uh, hang around elephants, but uh, let's say 15,000. 
well, thank you for the disclaimer. So you can triple that figure to get around to what the market value is today. But that said, an elephant that's alive, and Rav Kemi, and I love the guy dearly. I mean, he's come up with the mathematics to work out. An elephant alive today is worth around $1.6 to $2 million. I mean, just to show you the comparison and why. So if we're looking carbon markets, carbon per ton is around $25, depending what you're obviously going to purchase. And a live elephant is $100 a day, $100, four times that. And now if you look at that in terms of also the elephant being the, the farmer of the forest, just like a whale is the farmer of the oceans. And again, this is a banking podcast, everybody. You're, you're not tuned into the wrong one. But actually, when you're actually starting to look at it in terms of, well, how can you link that as an asset so it's tokenized and that asset can actually be purchased and is on the balance sheet of that respective organization. And it's only going to keep appreciating because you know what? By preserving the elephant, it, one park ranger can actually provide the same GDP output as 200 people in the local community where they might live in Central Africa, for example. It's huge. It's the multiplier factor. And this is exactly where the focus needs to go. It's this whole new line of sight as to that is the front line, which we should be looking at right now, because that's exactly where the biggest impacts are happening and where we can also make a material impact through diverting those capital flows in a positive manner. So let, let me let me just sort of twist on that a little bit, because a lot sure. of people are sort of have this perception that, that the banks are doing what they're doing and we'll keep the fintechs out for the time being because fintechs generally tend to just look for opportunities to engage to drive you know new opportunities but for the banks they're already in this business their money their business is money and um you know for, for all intents and purposes trust right some could take the argument that the banks are doing this purely just because they're being required to do so by regulation or is there actually a large uh, potential for revenue, new revenue and profit for banks by actually following down this ESG road correctly rather than just the greenwashing that we've seen a lot of banks doing? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a very valid point. I think the first part is that, look, any enterprise on the planet, regardless which sector or industry you're in, if you're not going to be a sustainable organization or have a sustainable um strategy so creating value based on values you're not going to be existing by the end of decade anyway i think that's a, that's a given um both from a, a corporate lens as well as from a consumer lens now i think the the next part is about the regulations and given my my global uh role i've been very fortunate especially this last year and I, I will caveat the amount of travel I do. I only do it if it's impactful. <laughs> so I have done a fair bit this last year. But it, it really is quite uh, interesting. I've been talking to Centurion banks on along Wall Street where they're very passionate, telling me they're going to fight the uh, the SEC around a lot of the regulations that are being proposed. I have here in Europe, so looking uh, very uh, much in the coming weeks to meeting Franz Timmermans, who wrote the EU Green Deal in a couple of weeks' time, where they're really embracing and looking at new policies and even trying to, where there are unregulated markets, like in the voluntary carbon markets, come up with frameworks to at least provide safeguards and rails. And then you've got like Japan, I was just prior to Christmas, so really going around the globe now for APAC where they realize they're, they're playing catch up a lot in this, not because of necessarily the broader ESG, but realizing the value creation that could be had is something that they had missed. And we've been speaking very openly to a number of institutions around that, both in private and public. And uh, for me, what's positive is everybody at least has finally come to the point that bit of Greta here, listen to the scientists, but also realize that there is value to be achieved by leveraging ESG, but holistically. And not just to try to monetize this for a, a particular metric that looks good on your books for a particular 
um, subset of uh, client base that you might have. Now, that said, you then got to realize what are the capabilities you're missing to be able to leverage that value and that insight. And, uh, and the discussions that I've been having around the globe, staying in Europe then, of one particular bank uh, here was about, well, how can they actually support that in the front end for their decision making for when they're starting to look at green mortgages, green credit cards, green not just to call it green, but actually embedding that as part of the decision intelligent workflows. And what are the data streams that are required to achieve that line of sight, but also provide justification at the end of the day, because this is a new space for a lot of organizations. There's also an education for a lot. You've got a lot of organizations that might be in a more of a traditional organization for strategy and how they perform their, their business historically. But if you look at the regulation side, yeah, the ESG uh, risk ratings and in the UK market, you've got Jeremy Hunt as chancellor who's obviously tackling that with his Edinburgh man memorandum. But equally on the other side, you've got the, the green asset ratio. That's only 12 months down the road where banks actually have to show how much of their portfolio is actually green by the EU definition. And I think that's also going to be a bit of a, a sea shift because it's not just about window dressing your books. There you really have to map against the, it's known as NACE, the indices against the EU ta taxonomy. So then you can really show that you're making that sustainable transition. And I think it's really going to come to a crossroad before even 2030 in this regards as to how many assets are available out there. And I think this is actually quite an interesting point, both in the voluntary carbon markets. We have an inventory issue right now. I don't know if many know that in terms of being able to do offsetting. But likewise, uh, for the banks that we speak to who are, let's say, at the uh, the top end of the Dajan Jones Sustainability Index, so really torchbearers leading in this space, struggling to find green assets. And I think that's the other area where AI has a role to play. Uh, because if I give, and again, I'm coming back to my tree hugging, so I apologize, but uh, coming back from my my uh, journeys last week in um, in Portugal, where they're looking at the forest that they have, but then how can they actually leverage the forest with a change of forest man uh, management, which will A, increase the amount of carbon sequestration of a forest, include obviously the social element, but also allow it to be then assetized for the next 20, 30 years accordingly uh, for whoever those financial institutions are. And I think for me, that's super exciting and interesting, but you need completely new data sets like water participation, what's the trend of the actual climate change, what's the tree species that can actually even survive there, how do you prevent bushfires, all of this sort of risk management area, which has been around for a little bit with TCFD, so Task Force of Climate Financial Disclosure about uh, physical risks, transition risks, and so on. But actually getting away from the disclosure and operationalizing that, that's the step change for 2023 that banks really need to think about. It's not just the rearview mirror. And the final one for Europe specifically is if you look at ESRIS, so European Sustainability Reporting Standards, uh, that's my last acronym for today, I promise. But it's no longer this rearview mirror. Look, you've got to look uh, all the way to 2050. I mean, I remember being in the square mile in 2008 where it wasn't much fun, to be very honest, during the last banking financial crisis. And we had uh, good old Mark Arnie come on and say, hey, now we've got forward guidance. Fantastic. But for guidance for him was like the next couple of quarters or a couple of years maximum. Now we're talking to 2050. <laughs> That's how you do that in terms of which assumptions, uh, what are the um, uh, the variables that you want to use in, in terms of denominators, etc. That's incredibly challenging for anyone. But then imagine you haven't got the data, never mind a crystal ball, uh, to be able to use that for forecasting. I think AI, to come back to Vilia's point at the beginning, it's got a huge role to play, but I think it's got to be bringing my common sense lens a little bit of a step back as to what are the actual capabilities in terms of data sets or markets that we want to actually contribute here to, to start that journey. And I think that's where banks are struggling a little bit at the moment. 
So as you correctly pointed out, this is a fintech and banking podcast. So you mentioned a couple of keywords there or trigger words for our listeners sometimes, uh, things like tokenization and regulation. Yeah. Now, we get a lot of, uh, well, a lot of uh, talk around the topic that things like cryptocurrencies, because they are unregulated, they are better for the environment. They actually achieve the ESG goals better. They they are spinning a lot of narrative around this. But instead of just going into the usual discussion about Bitcoin and stuff, uh, let me just put it this way. Do you think regulation is necessary or uh, is it actually something that is slowing down uh, the development of uh, towards ESG goals uh, in this uh, financial services space uh, specifically? I think that's a great question. I think I have that one before. So, <laughs> so, I think I think it's it's a mix of the two. I I think um, what you found is that just historically you had Europe, which has been more the torchbearers, generally speaking, and then you've got a number of the other geos around the globe that are playing catch up. That said, of course, any investment you can is cross border. It doesn't matter where we obviously physically sit. And as a result of that, there need to be some form of guardrails because um, when we come to comparing the apples and apples, I think there are unfortunately too many loopholes still to date. So let me give you one example, like with uh, the voluntary carbon markets, they're unregulated. But what you find is that one standard where you can say, I'm now certifying against standard A, uh, where as long as I plant trees, the trees are in the risk assessment are going to do X amount of carbon sequestration over a time frame of 20, 30 years, whatever. It might not be a native tree species, right? And it might not actually, it might be an invasive tree species. So I know that's a really simple example, but then if you apply that to more granular and how complex this does go, I think there needs to be a minimum baseline. On the other side of the coin, I think the innovation, so coming back to Rebalance Earth or some of the work we're doing also with engineered reefs is super, super exciting in that um, we're able to get absolute data sets which are above and beyond any standards for carbon sequestration below the sea line. And I mean, that is just, um, I mean, it is a first of a kind, but you wouldn't get that if you were in a regulated market. You would be, I, I don't want to suggest it's just a tick block exercise. It's not. But I think you need to have that provocation of uh, the innovators to come actually think about what is prudent and then afterwards maybe harmonize that. And I think we're seeing that with a number of the biodiversity uh, regulations right now. So TNFD is still in consultation. Next um, um, release will be in February and then September will be the final recommendation. You have GRI, which uh, a lot in the uh, for up until last year, we're talking about SASB more on the investor lens, GRIs, so global reporting in, in, uh, initiative on the, um, the dual materiality lens. They've, they've got something also for biodiversity come um, February, uh, but also you need to talk, look at it from a data standard lens. So ISO, for example, also have something that knows TCF uh, 440 going through right now. So I think the challenging is it has been acronym soup and there have been different actors running at different levels. But I think the one thing that has changed in the last 12 months, which has been a benefit to everybody, especially a shout out for TNFD, um, is that they created these knowledge partners. So instead of actually setting anything in stone as these are the goalposts, they've been working with all the above names plus more to work out what would be, let's say, a, a pragmatic approach. And then, of course, no doubt it'll iterate and there'll be updates in, in the foreseeable future. But at least it allows that baseline so that globally everybody has the same foundation to start with. And for me, I think that's useful because it also allows the do's and the don'ts while giving room for innovation which might not necessarily have been there when it's so prescribed like it has been back in the day i remember when socks and bars all kicked in and i won't want to go there again <laughs> so absolutely uh it's it, it's a balancing act <laughs> maybe a long-winded answer but uh hopefully it gave both sides of the coin 
It did, uh, pun intended, I suppose. Uh, and I also dropped a few more acronyms in there. So, but anyway, it's it's fine because it's a fintech podcast. We love our acronyms anyway. So. <laughs> we do indeed. Yes. Actually, actually, I was just thinking a little bit based upon what you were saying there. You keep referring back to the data sets, having the data, yep. more and more data, collection of data, storage of data. We start getting into compute and the need for compute. One of the things that that's also part of this discussion is around green IT. It's around, you know, um, energy neutral or carbon neutral data centers, so on and so forth. I, I'm yeah. wondering, can, can fintechs and banks, as this is a technology aligned podcast, can the fintechs and banks use technology to improve their ESG performance? Or is there a, a double edged sword here where as you use more technology, to, to help you with the ESGs, you're actually increasing your carbon footprint and therefore, you know, you, you have to find that equal good balance or is it a, a round robin dying game almost? I think you semi answered it in the question. It really is slightly a bit of a, de it depends. So yeah. for example, with the green IT element, there are numerous ways for optimization and with or without ESG to obviously reduce your, your carbon footprint that you have today. So we've done that with, organizations we've looked at a number of virtual machines how you obviously harmonize that and without any performance degradation and i mean we're talking the magnitudes of uh, like seven to eight metric tons per annum that can be saved so this is not insignificant it has really um impacts uh both from the emissions but then also the energy consumption obviously we still are in an energy crisis uh, as well as obviously the inflation in terms of operational efficiencies the other part there which you were sort of semi-touching on was more about the the broader let's say um uh, what we formerly know as uh, responsible computing elements. So there are the technological factors and there's the societal factors. So it's not just about um, obviously employee health and safety arrest, that's very important. But when we start looking at good code, clean code, but also um, looking at it from the AI lens as to how the, the code is being leveraged, yeah. Uh, around May, June time, we inaugurated the Responsible Computing uh, Forum, and another non-for-profit, which actually takes into account these to allow for either transparency, but also guidelines as to which areas you want to, um, let's say, not always talk about just climate, but look at how that data set can be leveraged. Now, the final one, which is sort of semi-touched on, was about the volume of data, because if they're not creating the data today, well, that's going to be, a, let's say, a new real estate that you're going to have to extend, augment, or how, whichever strategy you want to be able to leverage it. And if we're talking about um, certainly the geospatial data that we leverage, and uh, we're talking like pet, uh, petrobytes, so like 250 <laughs> petrobytes a day, that's not an insignificant amount. So you've got to come up with a good strategy as to how you want to digest and um, obviously from a materiality viewpoint, you look at which sectors are most impactful. But to be honest, if it's geospatial, by definition, you're taking normally a picture of the entire globe and then ingesting that and doing your analytics accordingly. So what you will find is that over time, some of the data sets, and there is obviously a catalog of data sets out there for different use cases, but some of the larger ones, certainly I think there are going to be more, um, let's say, harmonize that, that there will be a global standard, which people would then just ingest as an entity rather than curating it for themselves. But then vice versa, there's something tactical where you have, um, let's take, uh, I think Plastic Bank is a, a fantastic one, right? Both from technology, but also the societal uh, and um environmental elements, then absolutely there would be, let's say, those engagements which would just be specific for that 
project, which would then have X, Y, Z impact to your overall scorecard of metrics. And I think one thing that we haven't said, and I know you guys give money, it's bank and, and fintech, but I think what's important is what are the metrics throughout the organization, not just at the aggregated level, but really at the IT level. And I, I spoke with a... Um, uh, agri uh, culture clients um, also just prior to Christmas where they were looking at how can you apply green IT software patterns to actually make the code more effective and that's not to change all their their um, software language but really starting to change the culture and the mindset of their developers to take that into account as one of their design principles from the word go and then using a transformation office obviously capturing that in terms of the overall benefit both from uh, carbon footprint in this case, but obviously also there'll be a dollar sign associated with that. And I, and I think that's another thing which always sometimes gets missed is that engagement model part as to making sure that's also put on it. Because again, back to the intro at the beginning of the podcast, there's a huge element of education and knowledge sharing that still is required because this is a such a broad topic and there won't be one single person who will be Einstein know all of this, right? It's going to need to be modulized specific to those job role skill sets. So let me put a pin in that uh, green IT responsible computing uh, point with a a flippant, you know, dumbass question. Um, everybody's saying that that the way to uh, to to get uh, carbon neutrality is cloud computing. All the cloud providers are saying, you know, we will help you with reducing your cost. We will help you with reducing your carbon footprint. The answer to everything is cloud. So if I'm a bank and I stick everything in the cloud, I've solved all my problems, right? we're all happy and I'm very green and uh, good for me. I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> not, not to cut off my right arm here, or, you know, like uh, <laughs> reduce my, my network on LinkedIn and so on. <laughs> uh, the devil's in the detail is what I would say. Um, and, and I think there's, not to go too architectural, but I'm, I think there's a, a play as to what you need to stage versus what you need to ingest at the end of the day. And and I think that the, the bottom line is it has to be a holistic approach. Don't just take slide and marketing way up for what it says. I mean, really do do the homework because I, I've seen vice versa in that situation. And um, just be pragmatic, I, I think, is the bottom line. Mm-hmm. So how can banks and fintechs, particularly banks, differentiate themselves then from the the general population when it comes to focusing on ESG and truly demonstrating that they are following ESG, delivering on their, not just their requirements, but what we as society would like to see them do? Yeah. I think the first thing when I before I speak to whether it's a, a client that I've had for a period of time or a, a new uh, um, logo for a discussion is really looking at their own commitments and their own skin in the game as to um, it's not charity starts at home, but it really is, you know, if you want to be the torchbearer and you want to lead, then you lead by example. So when we look at their UN SDGs and uh, looking at what is the areas that they want to impact, not to do all 17 US SDGs, but really looking at if it's climate action, so SDG 13, what are the decarbonization activities or thematic investing that they're doing in this space? And how and which of the standards are they actually aligning to here? So it's comparable. Uh, and then you get to the point of what's the timelines? Because let's just remind everybody, if we want a planet and for my kids and for everybody else's children and next generations to have a planet to live on, we need peak emissions by 2025. So I can tell you when I speak to uh, certain um, C-suites and uh, they're talking about the regulations rather than talking to me about impacts, I respect that. But on the same notion, I always remind about what are the macro events and circumstances that we have, because 
it's borderless this this challenge and i mean also if we just take the us market since 1980 till today is 2.6 uh, 2.4 trillion dollars of um devastation due to climate change and it's going to be about 2 trillion dollars per annum from around 2050 onwards so this is not an insignificant amount of money that we're talking about here. and certain industries just won't exist if we don't change right so when we're looking at well, how do they lead then? If it's a strategy which is ESG, but I just see climate, so net neutrality, net pathway, and nothing else going on there, um, then of course I, by character, I like to share. But I'm also uh, I've been in Netherlands, I think, too long as well. I'm a bit Dutch, and I'm a bit straight to the point. <laughs> so, look, intrinsically, you need to look at um, how are you going to address uh, those other benefits, which can actually add value to your organization as well. So, simple ones from whether it's even board representation. Whoever came up with forty sixty between the gender equality. I have no idea, but it should be 50-50. But I mean, strides going in the right direction. But now yeah. take it to the next level down. How about the rest of the organization setup and that, that diversification? And if there's nothing there in that regards, then yes, it's great to have a conversation and look at opportunities to expand. But I think the other part is that if you haven't got that rounded approach, coming back to there is not going to be one Einstein that knows all, you're going to struggle with your broader ESG strategy anyway, because it's going to be very much your eggs all in one basket if it's climate in this case. And I think, please do not ignore that the trends are, nature's already here. 2023 is the year that we're going to be investing in nature in a real fundamental shift. But societal topics are literally just around the corner. So really do have that mindset that the, the it's not that the horse is bolted, but the train's left the station. And if you're not on it, you better catch up because otherwise you'll be overtaken by your, your industry incomes. And just look at the recent uh, Dow Jones Sustainability Index report just before Christmas as to the, the movers and the shakers. It's an interesting read as to which parts and geos of the world are really making the biggest inroads. So let me let me put you a little bit on the spot before Villa jumps in with another question. Put you a little bit on the spot, and and I understand if you don't want to don't want to answer this. We've we've asked in the past our guests to say, well, give us an example of the winners and the losers from your perspective. But I'm going to be kind to you and say, you know, out of all the banks you've spoken to, which which two three banks have stood out as really impressing you as as engaging on this and being seen as leaders. Yeah, so for me, um, BBVA, absolutely. Um, their strategy and their investment also in the incubator status in terms of tech startups. I know more of banks have that, but I mean, actually really being very tactical and specific as to which uh, biomes or realms around nature in particular that they're looking at investing. So coming back to the engineered reefs, um, that for me is fascinating. And just put in context, there's going to be around seven to 8,000 new engineered reefs that need to be, um, deployed by the end of this decade. And you think about that in terms of the asset, the value, but also the fact that trees, they're obviously the carbon sink, 7 billion um, uh, per annum, but the fact that under the ocean, the it's about a 10x in terms of carbon sequestration, then you start to get a feel as to, yes, the business case, but also how we stop coastal erosion, how we actually help the local fishing communities, bring back the diversity of vegetation indices, but also obviously income at the end of the day. Let's be honest. Um, they've been eroded because we've got uh, the whole issue there. So that, that was number one. I think the 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 next one for me, um, and this one is controversial because uh, unfortunately the some, some media has not been kind with those who used to be in the bank uh, leading uh, sustainability, but HSBC in terms of their labeling approach, um, I think that one is also quite unique in terms of they have obviously a large footprint in the APAC region and looking at how they're looking at sustainable infrastructure. 
I think that was unique in that they brought together a uh, a nice ecosystem uh, partnering approach. So they realized that it's not just going to be one size fits all, but how do we actually leave nobody behind and bring them along? And that's going to be around $7 trillion worth uh, of uh, investment. So that's also hugely significant. Um, I'm toying with... I like, uh, there's another one in the square mile, but I, I, I probably would pause. But the only reason I'm pausing is because they haven't released the, the product yet. But there's one which is really consumer-based that's looking at um, how to educate really at grassroots level. So you or I with our credit cards, with our debits uh, cards, et cetera, and how to actually not just report this, uh, but or using simple spend-based uh, data methodologies to work out carbon footprints, but actually then looking at the next best actions and informing them that decision-making. So that one we can do on a future one, or maybe we can send out on the, the comments when it's published. But in terms of those who are the worst, oh, I'm not going to make many friends when I go back to New York, but I, I was uh, really quite upset, to be honest, with a couple of the Centurion banks who literally take the, the mentality that... Uh, ESG is a load of baloney and uh, we're going to fight it through the courts and we're never going to have to report this stuff. I It pains me, to be very honest. I, I mean, um, I'm 37, so I'm, I'm not new kid on the block. I'm not the old one. I'm sort of in the middle of the road, I suppose. About to have my midlife crisis at some point, no doubt. But <laughs> but I mean, joking aside, it's, um, with having that benefit of seeing how the industry's evolved, but also knowing what's around the corner, I think any organization whose C-suite is talking to me like that, um, they should take a very long, hard look at themselves because honestly, A, the consumer will leave, but B, uh, then they're not going to be ready for when that transition comes. And that should not be, they should wait for the regulator to tell or dictate that. That should be very much so that um, they should be taking strides, especially uh, with a heritage of 100 years plus. I mean, they should be really formally in the driving seat, given their connections. Yeah. So now, now we kind of covered the the good and the uh, evil uh, of this. Uh, but let, let, let's get to the middle of the road. So we need to talk about the the ugly, I guess. Yeah. And well, from a very practical standpoint, and I guess this is your superpower, common common sense. So we're going to ask you to tap into that right now. So from a very practical standpoint, so if you if you look at banks today, uh, what are they doing in ESG? If your your average bank uh, in in, uh, in the bank markets. I mean, they are typically sustainable investing op op options. There's different kinds of carbon offset uh, options that you're able to maybe uh, choose as a, as a customer of the bank. Uh, and we talked about the lack of regulation uh, in certain spaces uh, when it comes to these types of uh, instruments. But the, the bottom line there is that a lot of these things are very opaque in terms of how they are defined and how are their impact actually measured and uh, are these even good uh, at the end of the day. There seems to be more and more media attention put to these topics uh, these days when uh, people are starting to question uh, whether even uh, carbon credits and things like this are actually having the impact that they, uh, people think that they have. Uh, so clearly it's it's a problematic space. Uh, now, yep. is it all smoke and mirrors or and I guess, how do we fix this opaqueness in this uh, in these markets? Yeah, so, I mean, you're touching on specifically there a little bit, the voluntary carbon markets, which has been, um, let me just contextualize. So obviously carbon markets are nothing new. There's compliance and there's voluntary. We'll keep out compliance for today's discussion. That's obviously mandated by jurisdictions with emissions trading. But if we're talking about voluntary and in terms of net zero pathway and how banks can act as a decarbonization advisor and which offsets they might recommend to, to their clientele or even invest for their own purpose, 
it really has been smoke and mirrors because uh, what you found uh, historically is that a majority of transactions have been really around uh, the energy credits and they're pretty much dried up. So those which are, let's say, your non-wind turbines or your solar and all the rest, and then looking at nature-based uh, solutions, tr traditionally it takes around two to five years to be able to have a credit in the voluntary market that can be then leveraged to be traded. But the coming back to some of our early discussion, there are different levels of standards in terms of how rigorous they are in the criteria. Yeah. Good news is um, the press has obviously got hold of that. Uh, the market is growing. Why is the market growing? Well, we've obviously had 4x in terms of net zero commitments in the last 18 months. There's about 8x still to go um, until probably uh, 2025 of corporations. So the market's only going to keep getting hotter um, because you should first off look at avoiding emissions. And I think that's something that is going to also get more attention. So we always speak about the scope one, two, and three, and then we get to scope four, which nobody even has heard of, but it exists. <laughs> so I think that metric is going to come out. But then I think if you come back to the market as to what's actually being traded right now, it was two years ago, a billion market. Last year, it was two billion. By the end of decade, we take a midpoint. We're looking around 30 to 35, 40 billion. So this is not insignificant. You have to then change the market in terms of the regulation. So there are what's now known as jurisdictional and sovereign markets. Now, if we take jurisdictional as, say, the midpoint from voluntary being the wild west, uh, jurisdictional has, let's say, a bit more uh, safeguards around it. And then you have the sovereign where it does what it says on the tin. You're looking at um, a limited number of players that are in a particular country or um, geography, such as the or continent in the sense of European Union. And then they would then define what the um, the framework and the rules of engagement are. What is the benefit of that is it's not just, okay, I have a carbon footprint and I still got to do some transformation, so I need to offset. It also means that you're obliged to then invest in the local communities where that offset is being produced. So um, actually during uh, COP15, uh, the country of Gabon, which is the, uh, to the best of my knowledge, it's the second most um, um, uh, forest uh, country on the planet. I think 87% of that ilk. They they, uh, they launched a framework. It's all public, by the way. Anybody uh, interested looking into this one? Uh, a framework uh, with uh, the UNFCCC uh, using Red Plus known as the framework, where they got around 15 billion uh, is what they're looking at in terms of uh, revenue. But more importantly, everything will then get reinvested in terms of whether it's education, whether it's um, if it's health. Uh, etc. And I think that's the trend that we're going to see because nobody wants to be associated with any level of greenwashing, no matter if it was by accident or let's say tactically. But I think on the other side, we're going to see that trend happen. It's not going to be overnight, um, but uh, as we see with the European Union, they're obviously in a consultation right now. And with that consultation, uh, at the end of, uh, I think, Q3, we're probably going to see finally a policy in place that will then tackle that for, for the continent of the EU. But I think that's going to be the same for a lot of countries. And if you go on the UN uh, website, just type in UN Red Plus, and there's a public website. You can see literally color-coded uh, map of the world, which jurisdictions already have something of this in place. And I, I think it was actually Deutsche Bank that was uh, one of the um, the biggest um uh, 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 partners to to uh, to start the trading in the software markets and a by seeing the benefit but also the value generation that it had for those institutions themselves and i, I think that's the other part to look at not just the di uh, divestment of which sovereign markets you want to play in but also looking at that circular flow of funding and, and i think that's the other thing that's interesting because of course once you start as we know with the law of economics then of course it's only going to have the multiplier factor um so i think that that's what uh super excites me um i think 
to come back to the part on voluntary, I think think voluntary would disappear, mind you. I think there will always be some element because obviously those have traded. There's a retirement date for obviously those credits, so whatever that lifetime is. Um, so don't discard them; they're not going to disappear overnight. So any corporation is probably going to start um, blogging against me, saying Adam says <laughs> no. I, I acknowledge that if you're investing, absolutely, it's it's going that way. But I I can tell you that the the level of uh, rigor is only going to increase, and I think that's for the benefit of everybody, to be honest, including the banks. And I think the the final point, sorry, I did say that the last one was, but I think it's also going to be the linkage between individuals, so really the consumer lens, as well as the corporate. Everything's been corporate-driven so far, but similar to the um, the consumer banking, I think that's also going to start picking up, not just about green deposits, whether it's aligned to the UN PRIs and all that good stuff, but actually looking at those who, even more consciously, not just having renewable energy uh, for, for their, their own utilities, but look at the, all their transactions over a course of a year and then wanting to purchase credits, that trend's also picking up uh, in, since the last two years. And I think that is a huge market, which is underestimated right now. You're absolutely correct. As you said, the um, this is all heating up. ESG is heating up. The industry is heating up. The globe is heating up. This discussion is heating up and we're running out of time, as is always the case. And like I said at the beginning, this is probably something we could dive into and passionately talk about for at least three hours and maybe share a, a couple of uh, environmentally friendly beers and, uh, and dive into this in a lot more details. But we are running towards the end rapidly of this episode. I'm just wondering, just very quickly, Adam, is there anything that you feel passionately about that we have not asked, not spoken about that you want to cover before we, we, we round off? Yeah, I think... Um... Probably just two two things, to be honest. Um, so one, in my introduction, I said I'm an EU Climate Pact ambassador, and it's a nice, grandiose title. Proud to be um, uh, aligned uh, to, to DG Climate in the EU Commission on, on this. But I think the reason I mention that is that um, for those who are just... Uh, out of pure curiosity or just want to upskill there's obviously a load of different knowledge hubs out there with like tcfd tnfd etc but please do check out the G gg climber because they're even for any sector let's take farmers so it drives me bonkers when i drive my ev car has to add along the road and i see all these plow fields and it just means all the carbon being re-released if you actually go on those knowledge bases it actually informs you the policies the carbon pricing internal pricing and actually doing the simulation, there's a tool called En-ROADS. Please do check it out. It's for free. It doesn't cost you anything. But I think that will also give you more of a variety, depending obviously on what your portfolio is. I think the final one is just the role of the banks and uh, fintech in general. And I know I've been very passionate about ESG. I always will be. <laughs> but uh, I think it's also realizing about that forward integration of being, whether it's the decarbonization advisor, Bidovers, whatever it, the case might be. We spoke a lot about AI and about uh, how banks need new capabilities for analytics, but I think the role, especially when we start talking about small, medium enterprises, and this is slightly ironic because they're, in the EU, at least, there's a, a new um, legislation known as the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, which means around 50,000 firms in the EU have to start reporting this about ESG uh, impacts that they're having. Um, financial institutions for seven markets uh, are now not needing to do this, unfortunately, <laughs> but uh, it's at the discretion for the, the remaining uh, 20 to decide. But the reason I mention that is that 
we shouldn't leave anybody behind. So although we talk at the corporate level and we might talk, let's say, at the tech startup level, I think those small medium enterprises who've got zero clue even about what the acronym ESG means, I think that's a new role that fintech and uh, banks need to really embrace more wholeheartedly than taking this as purely a disclosure and a lending decision-making process. And I think there, there's huge value to be added, whether you're doing the reporting as a service, having avatars as your decarb advisor uh, in an online manner, rather than having to upskill the branches just so you start getting scared. There's so many opportunities out there, but the personalization of that is huge. And I think that stickiness is also another element which is yet to really be, uh, let's say, uh, we're just scratching the surface, which is yet to really be embraced uh, wholeheartedly, at least at the, the mainstream banking today. Fantastic. We, um, we've had some very serious discussions here, uh, very important discussions. But as every one of our listeners know, we like to infuse a little bit of comedy and lightheartedness into our episodes. And with that, we invite our guests to share a joyful, funny story or joke. And I'm, I'm wondering whether you've come with your uh, toolkit and, uh, and brain full of something joyful to share with us uh, today, Adam. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, if anyone's seeing the podcast with the video, I'm looking for my dog. We, we literally got a dog at the weekend. And, <laughs> and the reason for sharing this, um, one of the first ever sessions I had when I was in the Square Mile of London um, training session I had was um, formerly known about the, the pooper and the scooper story. Okay. And, uh, I think this is quite relevant for, for ESG in terms of the whole greenwashing notion. So Basically, uh, cut a long story short, uh, it's a football game or a soccer game for our friends across the other side of the Atlantic. And uh, clearly, before the kids started playing, there's been a dog that's uh, clearly done its business. Now, instead of anybody actually taking care of this, there's basically a number of individuals on the touchline. So mothers, fathers shouting out to the kids, uh, score a goal, but mind uh, the pile over there. And basically, the, the notion is that uh, one guy in the end, it's a true story. Uh, so I will share a link in the YouTube so you can buy the book. Uh, one guy... He was the scooper. He solved the problem. He got rid of what was, uh, let's say, uh, alluding to uh, uh, causing uh, not the perfect match for, for those involved. And the, where this uh, analogy or metaphor is going is that, like with ESG, there's going to be a lot of uh, bumps or, let's say, unexpected presence on the roads. Um, don't be the pooper. Be the scooper. oh my god i'm gonna take that with me for so many different scenarios don't be the pooper be the scooper i love that yeah i think we could apply that to to an awful lot of things in our life but um thank you thank you very very much for joining us today adam it's been a fantastically interesting discussion i've actually definitely learned an awful lot it's it's opened my eyes i think there's a call of call to action here for for all the banks Get serious about ESG, do the right things or face your doom. I think that's what we're basically saying here of the next couple of years. Um, those are my words. Don't apply them to Adam because I don't want him to uh, do something <laughs> not by a whole load of, <laughs> a whole load of um, banks out there. But it's been fantastic. Thank you for joining us. If anyone wants to know a little bit more about ESG and, and get in contact with you, how can they do that? Yeah, by all means. So I'm predominantly on LinkedIn. Uh, so we'll stick a little link in, in the chat. Uh, absolutely reach out to me, message me um, via LinkedIn. More than happy to to come back and uh, address any points, both in a voluntary or indeed on any of the, the topics we discussed today in terms of the regulatory stuff. Yeah. Fantastic. 
Thank you very, very much, Adam. And to all of our listeners out there, thank you, as always, for joining us. Thank you for sticking with this episode. Hope you found it as interesting and exciting as Villa and I did. If you did, leave a comment uh, underneath. Tell us what you thought was the most interesting. Tell us what you and your organization are doing in the area of ESG. Maybe even you yourself. How do you feel about the climate, about the environment, the, the continuously dying planet that we're living on and what are we going to do about it? Because I, for one, do not want to live on Mars. I know some of you potentially maybe do. I don't. And I think me and my kids would much rather be here on planet Earth, where we have this fantastic, joyful planet for us to enjoy with all of its magnificence. Let's not kill it. Let's keep it alive and do what we can for it. But more importantly, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, leave us a comment and tell your friends about the fantastic podcast that is Fintech Daydreaming. This is Fintech Daydreaming.